and 14. Now, you've been with us here for our study in Job. We're kind of going through this middle part at a quicker pace. You guys remember what's going on. First two chapters set the scene. Going on the story that's going on in heaven. Dare we say the bet that's going on between God and Satan over Job. God says, have you seen my servant Job? Satan says he only loves you. He only worships you because you've blessed him. Job says, take everything away from him and he'll curse you. So God says to Job, you're allowed to do that. Take everything away. So Satan takes away everything from Job. Job still doesn't curse God. So then Satan comes to God and says, well, the only reason he's worshiping you is you haven't let me touch his health. Let me touch his health. So God says, you're allowed to touch his health, but you can't kill him. And so Satan comes and just curses Job here with all this health and all this malady. But Job still doesn't curse God. Now what we have here from chapters 3 through 38 is now Job and his three friends, we're going to get to a fourth friend here in a little bit, talking about why this is happening. And I said I would tell you every service, Job doesn't know what's going on behind the scenes. He doesn't. He doesn't know about this bet between God and Satan. He doesn't know this. Neither do his friends. And basically, we get to hear from his third friend tonight. His third friend, and his third friend is by the name of Zophar. Zophar says the same thing that Eliphaz says. He says the same thing that Bildad says. He says, Job, you have sin, and since you have sin, this is why your world and your life is completely, utterly falling apart. Look here at Job chapter 11. That Zophar, the name of I, answered and said, should not the multitude of words be answered and a man full of talk be vindicated? Should your empty talk make men hold their peace? And when you mock, should no one rebuke you? We're going to come back to that in a little bit. Basically, Zophar is saying, listen, you want me to let all this stuff go? Job, I can't let go of what you're saying. What did Job say? Well, in the previous chapters, Job says, I am blameless. This is not because of my sin, Job is trying to tell them. All of his friends come back and said, Job, your kids died because you sinned. Job, you have ill health because you sinned. Job, this is all you. This is your fault. Look at verse 6. That he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for they would double your prudence. Know, therefore, that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. That's kind of a fancy verse to say this. New Living Translation says this. Listen, God is doubtless punishing you far less than you deserve. Think about that. God is punishing you far less than you deserve. Job, you are so awful. You are so bad. God should be punishing you worse than this. So be happy it's not worse than what it is. Now, please remember that when you start doing hospital ministry out here at church. And you go to that person's hospital bed, and they're feeling just completely awful. I want you to look at them and say, you know what? You deserve more than this. You deserve worse than this. You should be thankful that God's not punishing you more than that. You'll be a great ministry to them. I just want to let you know that. This is what Zophar is saying. And I guess look what he says here in verse 11. For he knows deceitful men. He sees wickedness also. Will he not then consider it? Dare I say the simple translation is, Job, you can't get away with this. He knows what's going on, Job. He knows you have sin in your life. He knows what you're doing. You can't. Get away with this, Job. Look at verses 14 and 15. If iniquity were in your hand and you put it far away and would not let wickedness dwell in your tents, then surely you could lift up your face without spot and you could be steadfast and not fear. Verse 14, Job, if you'd put iniquity far from you and get wickedness out of your house, this would all be over, Job. Job, you got sin. Confess it. Repent. This could all be done if you would just stop and say, I'm a sinner and do this. 
And then backing track here a little bit, he says in verses 7 through 9, can you search out the deep things of God? Job, this is so difficult, Job. You can't understand it. Verse 8, they are higher than heaven. What can you do? Job, you can't know this. You can't understand what I'm trying to tell you. He knows you have sinned. And basically, I love verse 12. For an empty-headed man will be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. Now, I read that. That made no sense to me. This is what you would call a 4,000-year-old insult. This is great. For an empty-headed man will be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. We use a phrase right now with something like, hey, when pigs will fly, right? You'll be smart when pigs will fly. This guy is saying, you know what, Job? You'll be considered wise when a donkey has a baby human. I think that's an insult from 4,000 years ago. Try that the next time you're at work if you want to get to somebody. Well, you know, when a donkey's cold is born a man, and then just laugh, see if they get it. But the point is, he's insulting Job. He says, Job, you'll be wise and you'll understand this when a donkey has a baby. Okay, this is the great advice and counsel of Zophar. Job, you've sinned. You don't get it. You can't understand it, Job. You're not smart enough. Hey, when a donkey has a baby, maybe you'll understand this. Just confess your sin, get over to this, because guess what? I have the answer. I don't know about you. If you heard all that, sometimes the best answer is no answer, right? That's one of the things that we learned from Jesus. Do you realize Jesus sometimes said nothing? We've lost that. Haven't we? We have lost that idea, that mindset, that sometimes the best thing to do is to say nothing. Now, Job's going to come back here a little bit. And guess what he starts saying here? If you look at verse 2 of chapter 12, No doubt you are the people, and all wisdom will die with you. Look at verse 2 of chapter 13. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. See, now Job starts going almost what I call toddler on this. You think you know stuff? Well, I know more than you. Verse 2, obviously when you guys die, all the wisdom's going to die with you. Verse 2 is this dripping of sarcasm. See, basically right around chapter 12, this conversation really starts going downhill. I mean, it was bad before, but it really starts going downhill now. If you're a note taker, write this verse down. Proverbs 10, 19. Proverbs 10, 19. And the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. But he who restrains his lips is wise. And the multitude of words sin is not lacking. This is something I've noticed in my nearly 20 years of marriage with Dawn. That when we start discussing something and you feel that tension building and the conversation just keeps going, it just starts ending up in an argument. It's not worth it. We just need to stop the conversation. I don't know if I could ever look back in my life and say, wow, when I really drug that conversation out for a good hour, things really got better. No, you just start saying things you shouldn't say. One time we had a, a, a session out here at church, and it was somebody came out that, that works with the suicidal uh, people, and they talked about how just conversations and trying to help them, etc. And I remember she made a comment that I've never forgot. She says, you know what? Most problems can be dealt with in about 15 minutes. She goes, after 15 minutes, you just start rehashing. And I started thinking about that. That was probably 15 years ago. And I realized some of these times I have these really long conversations with people. It's like, you know what? I think we're just kind of rehashing the same thing. And as you rehash it, guess what happens? You get a little more upset. You get a little more frustrated. The emotions start coming out a little bit more. 
and the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. He who restrains his lip is wise. You know what? We could really have edited down the book of Job, had chapters 1 and 2, had chapters 3. We'll let Bildad, Zophar, and everybody else have one chapter to say. Job can have a response, and then God can appear. Instead, we have 35 chapters of human beings trying to figure out what God is trying to say and do. Human beings are trying to figure out God. Wisdom is knowing what to say, when to say it, and even if to say it at all. Wisdom is knowing what to say, when to say it, and even if to say it at all. Go with me to the book of Proverbs, please, chapter 26. Proverbs 26. Job probably should have just let his friends talk and said nothing. He couldn't help it, right? The sarcasm starts coming out. Hey, when you guys die, all the wisdom's going to die with you. I have to say something. Zophar starts out his conversation saying, Hey, Job, I can't let it go what you said. How many times have you ever been that way? You just had to say something, right? I, I, just, I just have to say it. No, you don't have to say anything. You know, the book of James has this great chapter which basically says this. How do you want to know if a man is mature? He can control his tongue. How do you want to know if a man is mature? He watches what he says. When should you say something and when shouldn't you? Look at Proverbs 26, verse 4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. That's pretty straightforward. Don't answer a fool. Someone's being foolish. Someone's being dumb. Let it go. Don't even respond. Look at verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Okay, now we always say the Bible has no contradictions, right? Proverbs 26, verse 4. Don't answer a fool. Proverbs 26, verse 5. Answer a fool. Now, what does that mean? If you never know what to do, just look at the life of Jesus. When somebody asks Jesus a question, what does he do? He answers it, right? Well, not every time. If you would come up to Jesus with a sincere question, he would answer it. If you came up to Jesus and he needed to correct you, he would correct you. But then you fast forward to when Jesus was before Herod and Herod wanted Jesus to answer all these questions or Pilate wanted him to answer some questions. Jesus wouldn't. Why? Because Christ knew at that time there's no answer that would be good. It's better just to keep your mouth shut. I have learned of the years out here, there are times where I just got to let things go. I have to do verse 4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly. I'm going to go down to their level. I don't want to do that. I just need to let it go. There's other times where somebody says something so completely ludicrous. Verse 5, I can't let it go. i got to say something. There's times when you need to keep your mouth shut, and there's times when you need to say something. I've run into believers that they really need to focus on verse 4. They need to learn to keep their mouth shut. I've run into believers that really need to focus on verse 5. Yeah, sometimes you need to say a little bit more. Now, the great question is this. When do you keep your mouth shut and when do you say something? Just like Jesus, each situation is unique and the Lord will tell you at that moment. He will. The Holy Spirit will say, now's the time. Defend the faith. Apologetic. Stand up. There's other times the Holy Spirit will say, don't. Just let it go. Well, I can't let it go. Why not? Well, if I let it go, they're going to think they're right. If I let it go, it's going to look like they won. If, they let, if I let it go, it's going to look like I'm just some doormat and they can walk. Wait a second. Are you concerned about the gospel? Or are you concerned about how people look and perceive you? See, so often when I've run into people that said, well, I, I can't let it go, they're concerned about them. 
and how they look and how people perceive them. They're not stopping at that moment saying, oh, Jesus, how can I glorify you? Think about this. Think about over your years in life when you got into arguments and fights that were just stupid and dumb. And looking back, you're like, why did I do that? How many of them did you say, wow, Jesus, I really honored you? Most of the time, they're just not worth it. Don't, it's just not worth it. Now be careful with verse 4. I was doing marriage counseling with a couple one time. And we talked about this. And they would get into these silly little fights. Newly married, trying to figure it out. And they'd get in these silly little fights. So they got into a fight and the guy called me up. And he said, you know, my wife and I just got into a fight. And I said, oh, come on, man. I said, you've got to put into practice the stuff we're talking about. He goes, oh, I did. I did, Pastor. True story. I did. I said, well, what did you do? Well, as soon as she started acting like a fool, I told her what Proverbs 26 verse 4 says. And says, I'm not going to answer a fool. And I walked out. I said, okay, that's... Okay, you applied it, but you really didn't apply it. You know, you need to go back in and tell her you're sorry. I've seen people be prideful about being right, too. Well, you know what? I know what you want to do. You just want to have a fight, and I'm not going to go down to your level. Oh, come on. The Spirit will lead at the moment. Once again, wisdom, knowing what to say, when to say it, and even if to say it at all. Zophar says, I can't help myself, Job. I got to respond to what you said. Well, then Job says in Psalm, excuse me, Job 13, I got to respond to you. Job says in Job 14, I got to respond to you. No, no one needs to respond to anything. Real quick, Dustin, can you put that slide up real quick? Just a couple quick passages here. Four great Proverbs. I, I just simple ones. Look at the first one. Proverbs 11, verse 12. He who is devoid of wisdom despises his neighbor, but a man of understanding holds his peace. The most mature thing you can do sometimes is not say anything. Hold your peace. Next one, Proverbs 15.1. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. You know that's true. You get agitated, so you say something a little loud. Well, then they say something a little louder. Well, then you say something a little louder. Harsh words stir up anger. Proverbs 20, verse 3. It is honorable for a man to stop striving since any fool can start a quarrel. So good, you can start a fight with somebody. Congratulations, the Bible says you're a fool. You want to be honorable. End the quarrel. Proverbs 29, verse 11. A fool vents all his feelings. A wise man holds them back. Not everybody needs to know what you think. How many times have we said that? I just couldn't help myself. Well, the last fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 is what? Self-control. Self-control. A fool vents all his feelings. A wise man holds them back. We can really learn here from just Zophar and Job. Sometimes we just don't need to say it. This whole book could have been completely different, right? If they just would have stopped and said, Hey, does anybody know why Job's going through all this? No, man, I don't have a clue. Do you know? I don't know either. Me neither. Hey, guys, why don't we just pray for Job? Instead, everybody had to tell what they thought and what they think. And next thing you know, you have 35 chapters of man's opinions. Now, before we move on to Job's response to Zophar, does anybody have any quick questions, comments, about anything we covered here thus far with those Proverbs, etc.? Okay. Oh, Ron. Yes, that's a good saying. Better to remain silent 
and thought a fool than to be open your mouth and prove it. And there's a proverb that actually sounds very similar to that. And I can't remember exactly where that's at. But yes, that is a lot of truth to that. A wise man sometimes just says nothing. The greatest example of that is Jesus Christ. Anybody else have anything? Jody. He's surrounded himself with a bunch of losers. That's how I feel. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, you know, you, you bring up some interesting points there. And like you said, we could take each one of those that way. And, and I don't disagree with you, but we could also take them the other way too. You know, when we talked about Job's wife, maybe that was the most loving thing she could think of. You're in such misery, Job, just curse God and die. You know, I love you so much, I just want to see you not suffer anymore. I don't know. I had a gal come up to me after I taught that lesson saying that's the way she took that passage. Because that's the most loving thing to do is hope that her husband would die. Um, concerning the kids, that, that seems to be how the parents would kind of try to spiritually encourage and also try to, you know, we would say, now I'm going to pray for my children. They just kind of offered sacrifices. It's kind of hard to tell. And, you know, with these three friends, yeah, that's the wisdom of man back there. But you bring up a good point, Jody. You know, Job right now has nobody. And I think there's a passage coming up where he basically looks at his friends. And let me see if I can find it real quick. There's a passage coming up where he basically says, um, yeah, right here, Job 16. Jump ahead if you will. Job 16, verse 1. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. (laughs) So, you know, Jody, you're kind of right. I think in a little bit, Job basically says, I wish you guys wouldn't have come. But, you know, by them coming and having this supposed theological conversation, we really get to be a fly on the wall to a lot of the stuff that's going on. Because a lot of the things that they're saying in our deepest, darkest times, we've struggled with these thoughts too. You know, God, are you there? Why are you allowing this to happen? Do you even care? I mean, is there some sin in my life that I'm not dealing with? I mean, these things have popped into our mind too. If you remember correctly, when we started our study in Job, we said, imagine in your deepest, darkest time, your thoughts were recorded for the world to read. That's kind of a scary thing. Kathy? It definitely is. Uh, that is a great point. The doctrine of Zophar is still around. You will run into people that are Christians in name and denominations that says, oh, you have cancer, you have unconfessed sin. Oh, you're not getting healed? Well, obviously God's not happy with you. That's a lie from the pit of hell. And that still is around today, and people have carried a burden on their shoulders, thinking, I am sick because of something I have done, and if I would just find this sin and confess this sin, I could be healthy and wealthy and wise. Uh, God allowed this to happen. God allowed this to happen in Job's life. Anybody else have anything before we move on here? All right, Job's response. We already talked about this Job sarcasm. I got to respond. I got to say something. I just can't let this go. Well, Job probably should have just let this go. 
Job's response here, once again, verse 2, No doubt you are the people who with wisdom will die with you. You guys are so smart. You have this all figured out. And he kind of goes on the same path again that we've seen before. This idea of you don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on. God is wise. God is smart. Um, why are you mocking me? Why are you just picking on my sin? And it's just back and forth and back and forth. Well, well, the problem here is that what you start to see with this, some of this stuff is Job now starts to contradict himself. Okay, take a look here real quick at Job 13. Job 13. See, in Job 13, you start seeing him say this right here. Only two things do not do to me. Then I will not hide myself from you. He's speaking to God. Withdraw your hand far from me and not let the dread of you make me afraid. So one thing he's saying here to God, he goes, God, don't take your hand away from me. Okay, Lord, don't take your hand away from me. Okay, keep your hand right there in Job 13. Jump back to Job 7. What does he say in Job 7, verse 16? I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone, for my days are but a breath. Once again, talking to God. So in Job 7, verse 16, leave me alone. Job 13, verse 21, don't leave me alone. You know what Job reminds me of at this point? Reminds me of when my youngest son, Tyrus, or even Layden, our five-year-old Tyrus, our three-year-old, are so tired. So tired. Layden's probably the worst one at this. So tired, he just can't go to bed. He just can't get comfortable. And we keep trying. The best thing for you to do, buddy, is just lay down. He lays down and he fusses. He gets up and he fusses. He doesn't even know what he wants. He's so worked up, he doesn't even know up from down. Just that little toddler, tired mentality. Job is so worn out from this. Chapter 7, leave me alone, God. Chapter 13, don't leave me alone, God. I've seen that when I talk to people. They get so worked up, just emotion. They're letting their emotions get the best of them. And it's no longer faith that's guiding their life. It's emotion. And whatever moment you catch them with at that day, God is either the greatest God in the world, and next thing you know, they're going to go to Ecuador and save the whole nation for Jesus. Or just take my life now, it's not even worth it, and I don't know why I'm here, God's just cursing me. Oh, come on, we've got to get off that roller coaster. We've got to get off that roller coaster. Emotions are not necessarily wrong. God has designed us as human beings to have emotions. Emotions can be good. The emotion of love, the emotion of joy, the emotion of peace. But when you allow your emotions to control your walk with Christ, you're in dangerous ground right there. And this is what I call, once again, the roller coaster Christians. They're up and they're down and they're up and they're down. And you never know what you're going to get with them. Proverbs says this. Proverbs 24, verse 10. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Now, that verse hurts. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. You want to know how deep and strong your walk with the Lord is? Go through a trial and a tribulation and see how you respond to it. Don't judge your faith on when everything is working out. Because we all say praise God when it's bluebirds and sunshine. But when your world is falling apart, can you still say, Lord, I trust you and I love you? Okay, then you have a faith that's solid in the Lord. Because when we faint in the day of adversity, that's God's way of trying to show us you're not as strong as you think you are. My oldest son, Elias, who is 10, is reaching that point of being a young boy where he thinks he can take on the world, right? So every now and then he wants to do something just to prove how big and how strong he is. So what's the best thing to do? Let him do it and completely, utterly fail. That's parenting 101 right there, right? Hey, Dad, I can lift that. No, you can't. Yeah, I can. No, you can't. 
Yeah, I can. Go ahead. Try it. I find it funny. You sit back. He tries. And it's the hardest thing for him. It is the hardest thing for him to have to sit back and say, I can't. I mean, like the words can't even come out of his mouth. I can't. But by trying to attempt it, it reveals he does not have the physical strength to do it. Sometimes the Lord allows things in your life and my life to reveal, James, you're not as strong as you think you are. This little test right here kind of revealed it. You're fainting in the day of adversity. So now God doesn't condemn us. Remember that, Romans 8, 1. But he will convict us to say, okay, let's get back working on this. Let's get back into the Word. Let's get back into prayer. Let's work at this together. Now here's the problem, though. When we faint in the day of adversity... Some of us have a tendency to just quit. I'm just done. The reading doesn't do any good. The praying doesn't do any good. Church doesn't do any good. I'm just done. I quit. And you've heard me teach this point before. If you ever want to quit, you have joined a great group of people in the Bible. Jeremiah tried to quit. Elijah tried to quit. Peter tried to quit. Moses tried to quit. We can go all down the list. Several of those guys wanted to quit at one time or another. But the Lord said, you can't. And they realized they can't either. Be careful. when Emotions are not necessarily wrong, but you've got to be careful. See, Job here, now he says this great statement. Look at Proverbs, excuse me, Job 13, verse 15. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. That's a pretty powerful verse, Job's saying here in the midst of this trial. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Think about that. Even though my world will completely, utterly fall apart to the point of my death, I will still trust God. That's a pretty big statement. Lord, no matter what that diagnosis comes back, when that test result comes back, I will still praise you and honor you. Lord, it doesn't matter if I have a job tomorrow or not, I will still praise you and honor you. It doesn't matter if my house is falling down or falling up, I will praise you and honor you. It doesn't matter how I feel when I get up in the morning, I will praise you and honor you. Though he slay me, yet I will still trust him. Now, once again, if we could just stop that verse right there, that'd be great. Look at the rest of that verse, verse 15. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. Even so, I will defend my own ways before him. Oh, come on, Job. He was so close. Lord, I'm just going to trust you, but now I'm going to defend myself to you, God. Now, what does it look like to defend yourself to God? God, I don't know why you're doing this to me. I've never done anything to deserve this. You know I love you. You know I've served you. Why are you doing this stuff to me? You know, I just want to do anything I can for you and your glory. You don't have to defend yourself to God. He knows your heart better than anybody. Job should have just stopped with, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I tell you, if you're going through trials and tribulations in life right now, maybe the only thing you need to know is the beginning of verse 15. God, I will trust you no matter what. No matter what, I will trust you with what's going on in my life. Now, what happens when life is difficult? We're kind of running out of time here a little bit, but write this down, Hebrews 6.19. Hebrews 6.19. There's a great passage that says, we have an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. See, what happens is, when we allow sometimes situations and emotions to get the best of us, we're kind of like that ship in the water that's not anchored, and we're just taken wherever the wind blows us. Hebrews 6.19 is telling me that I have an anchor of the soul, sure and steadfast, that hope that God is with me no matter what. You've got to throw your anchor down and say, Lord, a storm is coming. I see that. I get that. But, Lord, I'm going to trust you. Trust you. 
Now, it would be nice if we could end with that idea. Problem is, Job has this brief moment of, Lord, I trust you even though you, don't, you slay me. Verses 20 and 21, don't leave me, Lord. But then he jumps right back into, woe is me. Look at verse 24 of Proverbs 13. Why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? Will you frighten a leaf driven to and fro, and will you pursue dry stubble? For you write bitter things against me, and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. Verse 26, have you ever felt that God is writing bitter things against you? Verse 27, you put my feet in the stocks, and watch closely all my paths. You set a limit for the soles of my feet. Man decays like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. Man who is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. Does that what your life feels like? My life is few days and just completely full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. Job goes right back to the woe is me. I'm just a moth-eaten garment. I'm a rotten thing. My days are few and full of trouble. Why are you against me? Everything that you have coming towards me, God, is bitterness. Jump ahead to verse 10. But a man dies and is laid away. Indeed, his breath, he breathes his last. And where is he? As water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dries up, so a man lies down and does not rise. To the heavens are no more. They will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in that grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. If man die, shall he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes. See, now Job's even questioning, will I, will I even live after I die? I don't even know anymore. Now, before you think he really means that, there's a great passage coming up in Job 19 where it says that I know that my Redeemer lives and I'll see my Redeemer in my flesh. But you know what happens in the middle of darkness and despair? You convince yourself of things that aren't true. Job is convincing himself here in Job 14 that I don't even know what happens after I die. I've had conversations like that with people before where they are just at the bottom of the pit and I'll say, now listen, come on. You're like a dog chasing its tail on this one. I said, remember, God loves you. Well, I don't even know if God loves me anymore. Oh, come on. Come on, you know that God's word says that yeah, God's word is true and I'll see you through this. Well, I don't even know if I can believe the Bible anymore. We reach such a point of darkness and despair and discouragement and depression that we start doubting just these facts, these biblical truths, and we start convincing ourselves, God obviously doesn't care, God doesn't love me, my life is awful, and everything is bad, and this is what we convince ourselves of. Where we stop and say, I don't even know anymore. I don't even know if prayer does any good. I don't even know if it does any good to go to church. I don't even know if it does any good to give it over to the Lord. I don't even know anymore. And that's how Job ends it. He ends it with, I don't even know what's going to happen when I die, and my life is just meaningless and pointless. And that's how Job ends this. And what you see here as this goes on, we're going to get now into these ideas of where Job every now and then sees a glimmer of hope, followed by depth and despair. This is a very honest book. A very honest book. Now, we're going to stop there at Job 14. But if you've been with us through our study in Job, I've told you each week, we're going to end on a high note. Go with me, if you will, to Psalm 20. Psalm 20. Because we know the full story. Last week, we took you to Psalm 121. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Excuse me, Psalm 121. Here in Psalm 20. What a great passage. Once again, if you are going through a tough time, if you know someone who's going through a tough time, maybe you're not in a Job moment now, but you have a loved one that is, and you don't even know what to say to him, 
This week, give them Psalm 20. Psalm 20. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt offerings. Selah. Remember, Selah means pause. Stop. Meditate. Think about it. May he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. We will rejoice in your salvation. In the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save, Lord. May the king answer us when we call. That is your psalm for this week. Print that out, write that out, put that on your fridge if you're going through Job moments. If you're not going through a Job moment, amen. When you run into somebody who it is, Psalm 20. Give that to them. Maybe send them a card with it. Print it out, write it to them, send it to them in the mail. Tell them to put it on their fridge. Because if we want, we could just end with Job 14 and say, okay, woe is me, I don't even know what's going to happen. Or we can say, I do know what's going to happen. Psalm 20, my God is my strength and my help. He will help me through this. He will defend me and God will be with me in all things. God is the anchor of my soul. I will not be moved. Even though the winds come against me, I will not be moved. Job, in the midst of his darkness and discouragement, his eyes aren't on the Lord. His eyes are on the situation. And you know, and we say this a lot out here, keep your eyes on the Savior, not on the situation. If you keep your eyes on the situation, that's going to lead to discouragement. That's going to lead to depression. It's going to lead to all that distress. If you keep your eyes on the Savior, man, that's what's going to get you through this. So, does anybody have any final questions, comments here about Job here? Ryan. Yeah. No. It's like an adult trying to have a rational conversation with a two-year-old. Um, there's a lot of words being spoken, but nothing's happening. Um, and this is one of the ongoing themes here of Job, this idea of Job saying, God, I want to talk to you, followed by, yeah, but I know I can't talk to you. We're never going to fully understand and grasp what the Lord does. We're never going to fully grasp and understand it. You know, when Dawn and I went through some problems years ago, and we were having miscarriages, and it was a really deep, dark time, I know one of the verses that Dawn clung to was Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And that's just a great passage. The things that God does is never going to make 100% sense to us. It's not. And really, our ideas to God, they're, they're really kind of silly. But it's amazing. We think our ideas are so wise and so smart, and I've analyzed the situation, God. And so therefore, in the name of Jesus, I want you to do this. It's not really a good idea, Lord. Thank you for saying no. His ways are above us. And like you were saying there, Ryan, um, it's not like you can tell God a thing or two. He knows what's best. 
And if there's something happening in our life right now, we have to remember back to these classic passages. God is good and does good. He works good in all things. And He has a wonderful plan for our life. Remember, God's definition of good and wonderful is different than our definition of good and wonderful. But we have to trust His definition of good and wonderful. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? Yeah, Mark. Who wrote the book of Job? We don't know 100% for sure. A lot of people think maybe Job wrote the book of Job. Mm-hmm. That's a good question. We don't know for sure who wrote the book of Job. So, yeah, but we know in the book of Job itself that Job is never revealed to of what happened. Job may have possibly wrote this down. Somebody else may have wrote this down. Um, we do know from putting the names together of the people that these descendants, these people, Eliphaz, Bildad, etc., seem to be, if it lines up genealogy-wise, seem to be descendants of Abraham. So these guys possibly would have lived after Abraham, Jacob, and Esau in that time period right there. So it could have been written down by somebody else that the Lord revealed this to, but we don't know 100% for sure. Good question. I else have anything before we close up. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, if there's someone here tonight going through a Job moment, encourage them, uplift them, let them know that you are there. You are there. You are their sure foundation, their anchor for their soul, Lord, and you are their hope. And when we run into somebody this week who is going through a Job moment, help us to give them Psalm 20. Help us to give them the hope that we can only give them to let them know that you are there, even in the midst of this storm, that you love them, Lord, that you love them. And if there's someone here today that's fainting in the day of adversity, Help them to realize that this is an opportunity for them to grow stronger and deeper in you in all ways and all things. We thank you and we praise you in your name. Amen. Now, before I let you guys go, we're going to do two things here. It's a little bit crazy tonight. We are going to try to have a time of prayer up here like we normally do since we didn't have it last week with communion. But we also need to get the chairs all stacked up. Uh, we're going to be doing some stuff in the sanctuary this week. So Richard wanted me to let you know, just stack the chairs up. He's got people that's going to put them on racks then move them out of the sanctuary. So if you want to take some time tonight and just stack chairs, that would be appreciated. If you've got something you want to pray for, come on up here afterwards and let's pray for this. So, yes, Brock? 20. 20. And Brock is in charge of those stacks. So Brock will do that. Steve says don't go over five, so, but Brock, if you want to do one to 20, that's cool, man. Now, uh, yes, probably five would probably be a nice limit there. But if you want to do just one of 20, like a Tower of Babel thing, I'm okay with that. So, all righty. Thank you for those that are helping. If anybody has anything they want to pray about, come on up here then.